like started before I was born. My father-in-law found the body of a Jane Doe in 1968. She was called the tent girl because she was wrapped in a canvas tent wrapper. 20 years later, well, yeah, 20 years later, I actually met my wife to be almost 20 years later in high school. I was a senior and she was a junior. They just moved to our area from in Tennessee from northern Kentucky. Our story became very quickly known to me about the tent girl. And long story short, I spent the next 10 years trying to identify her. Along comes the Internet. I find her sister looking for her, and I become the world's first cyber sleuth. That led to a great many more doors to walk through, which one of which would end up being the Doe Network. Welcome to St. Louis in Tune with Arnold Stricker and Mark Langston, where we size up current and historic events involving people, places, and things in areas such as the arts, crime, education, employment, faith, finance, food, health, history, housing, humor, justice, and sports. Our weekly podcast originates from and connects the gateway city to our country's current cultural fabric and lives. One of the things that is a silent disaster that's going on in our country. 600,000 individuals go missing every year. Oh, my. 4,400 unidentified bodies are recovered each year. In the state of Missouri, there are 395 missing persons, there are 100 unidentified persons, and there are nine unclaimed persons. And when we talk about that, I've heard about missing persons. You hear about that. Somebody filed a missing persons report would give credence to that I've heard about unidentified people. Uh But the whole unclaimed thing, bodies that have are out there that have not been claimed by someone. And as we were doing some research for another show that talked about St. Louis's baby doe, I was able to check in on a couple different websites and contacted an individual who's on the line who's going to be talking to us. And he also was a former NamUs employee. And NamUs is a group that is a national group about naming the unnamed. It's the National Missing and Unidentified Person Systems. And he has been intimately involved with developing a network where Unidentified individuals could be linked with missing persons. Todd Matthews, he's a co-founder of a group that's called the Doe Network. Todd, how are you today? I'm good, and you guys? We are great, thank you. I really appreciate you coming on the show, and I've got a lot of questions. I told you I was going to send you some, and I got a little disconnected in what I was doing, so I'm not going to throw you any curves. So you're going to be able to answer all of them very easily. But talk a little bit about your involvement with the uh, group that you helped co-found, the Doe Network, and why that was important and how you went about doing that. Like it started before I was born. My father-in-law found the body of a Jane Doe in 1968. She was called the tent girl because she was wrapped in a canvas tent wrapper. 20 years later, well, yeah, 20 years later, I actually met my wife to be almost 20 years later in high school. I was a senior and she was a junior. They just moved to our area from in Tennessee from northern Kentucky. Our story became very quickly known to me about the tent girl. And long story short, I spent the next 10 years trying to identify her. Along comes the Internet. I find her sister looking for her and I become the world's first cyber sleuth. That led to a great many more doors to walk through, which one of which would end up being the Doe Network. And was, were you, what were you 
doing prior to the internet coming on? Were you just searching old newspaper clippings or were you able to do that at the library or what was your thought process in your investigation? It was a manual search, gathering sort. And as a, from a teenager to a person that's nearly 28 years old, that's the years that I spent gathering all the information of the tent girl. Like the magazine article would claim her age between 13 and 16, 13 to 19, but still within the realm of being a child. My father-in-law saw he was, you know, since he found the body, he actually saw her. She said she had painted fingernails and she had very well-developed breasts. She said, I feel like this was a woman. She was just small. And that was right. And that's what I don't know. I just said actually saw the body because the state of Kentucky did not have a forensic anthropologist. There wasn't a lot of forensic technology back in the 60s. So I had to think about it. The data that I'm going from is from technology 20 years older than what I'm seeing now. I couldn't take it at the face value from the 80s and 90s when it really occurred back in the 60s. So you have to factor in what we knew then and what we know now to be very different. Well, you mentioned a lot of changes that have taken place. And with the technology and just with the advent of the Internet and being able to have people, my words, dump information on and be able to you know, extract that information and, and then utilize it in, in different ways, that's become really valuable in what you all at the Doe Network actually do. Is that correct? It is. It's gather, sort, and present. And, and you're looking for And I feel like the public needs a little more information because if my year at the Department of Justice working on NamUs, I think sometimes people were dismayed that a public person would come forward with a theory. But why are they talking? What information could they possibly have? Coming from the volunteer sector myself, from the private sector, I feel like you have to tell people, here's what we want from you. If I'm showing you this information, what can you do? Just like America's Most Wanted, here's how you can help. I think you have to give them that further instructions. It's not like you're asking them, hey, take a wild guess at it. Just, just This is a John Doe, and it could be this 3,000 missing persons. Take a wild guess at it, and we'll check it out. You have to be really more specific in that. We're looking for a specific individual that saw something that's very unique. Uh, a piece of information that they might not have thought was valuable until we lay out the photo in front of them. And this is what we're looking for. They might not know that they possess valuable information. So I think that's what Doe Network is more about, is trying to get that out in a consumable fashion so that people can look at it. Doe Network's more the anecdotal data, the newspaper articles, just the visuals, a lot of photographs. Where NamUs is more of a forensic database, more based on DNA dental, fingerprint analysis. You're not going to go into the stories that a person that wants to read the stories is going to see. Very different, but it's different by design. I'm glad that you brought about that distinction because I was going to ask you, I'm familiar with the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, and I think a lot of people would be because of uh, Adam Walsh and his death and John Walsh, who America's, um, what is it, America's most most wanted in that show. But I was not, I think I had heard about NamUs, but maybe really didn't understand what it was. But I, th- I think the distinction that you made between NamUs and the Doe Network is, is very good. So I can go on and I'm on the Doe Network right now, and it's an international thing. It's yeah. just not to the United States. Wow. Yeah, it's all over the country, all over the planet. And NamUs was very specific to the United States because it was the Department of Justice program. So hmm. understanding these distinctions when we were developing, I got to help build NamUs and put it into an operational phase. But it's very clinical as compared to the, the communities that are involved in Doe Network, not to say one is better than the other. It's just different tools to get to the same end with a different process along the way. Has there been any discussion, and as you as a, a founder of the Doe Network, 
of linking those together, or do they do you all communicate with each other? Because I know as you are the kind of media director for the Doan Network, what is that interaction? So for a period of time, when I worked both with NamUs and still owned the Doan Network, I was the conduit. I was the person that would find data from the volunteers on one side to see if it was relevant to people that were working in official capacities on the other side. And then spillover data from if it was something like, wow, we should really make it publicly viewable because it would really be valuable for this reason. But there was never any impropriety where I would sneak and tell people something they shouldn't know. Never. And I think that might have been expected by a few people at some point in time. But it's, no, that, this is my job and my role. These must re- remain very distinct from each other. But there are ways that you can help because we're on the same mission, looking to the same end game. Yeah, that, and that's really important. When a mother or a dad or a sister or a brother uh, can't find a, a sibling or a child, or it, it's just horrendous. And I was just, the numbers just blew my mind. It, missing persons, I get, but unidentified and unclaimed, that's a whole nother okay. kind of thing. And on your website, there's some things that are graphic, and you have to go into that knowing that you're going to maybe stumble on something that you didn't want to see. Obviously, there's no like murder kinds of scenes, but it's maybe the photograph of a face of someone who's deceased. Right. And, and it felt very scary at first when we were first looking at doing this. It was like, should we do this? Could we do this? Because it's almost like putting unidentified remains out for public display. Think about it. If you're looking for a missing person and you literally have to go to the morgue and they pull back the sheet, is this your daughter? Is this your right. uh, brother? Whoever. You have to go through that process. Sometimes they say, no, that's not my loved one. So they were exposed to it. With the volumes of cases that we have, the only way to do it is to do it on a global scale. The only way to do it is in mass. And there's warnings. So people do see that if you don't want to see graphic things, this is not the place for you. If you have no reason to be here, this is not for entertainment. This is a very serious situation. I think it was a necessary thing that we had to do. I think so. I agree. And these are actually, there There are composites on there. Sometimes there are no images, but what it would give you, and I'm just doing this for the people who are listening, there is dates of discovery, where they were, somebody was discovered. I'm, I'm looking at right now on uh, unidentified. And height, weight, hair color, uh, things like that, identifiers, whether dentals, fingerprints, clothing, personal items, the circumstances of the discovery, and the investigating agencies. Tattoos. Yeah, different kind of tattoos and things like that. How is all this information gleaned? Again, I know you have a what I would call a team of volunteers, and those volunteers are very well screened by you to make sure that they're really focusing on certain things, but this is generally not their full-time job. Right. No, it never is. The funny thing was I was volunteering to donate network at whatever capacity I could. My day job was NamUs, but before that, it was the factory. I was the quality auditor at a factory, and it made the jump from one very different career to a very different one. I mean, it was a, it was like night and day indifferent. But, I mean, I often wonder what happened, what would happen with Doe Network if I just stayed there and spent that decade or so developing Doe Network, what would happen? But I really feel like there was no reason to compete Doe Network with NamUs. I think I had to be there to make sure there wasn't a competition. I had to be somebody with a foot in both worlds to make sure that this is not a contest. This is a collaborative agreement. We have to all work together. I had to be there to make sure the Department of Justice realized the value in the public domain. But that's the largest interface. We tried to gear law enforcement, name us to be interfaceable with law enforcement. 
medical examiner communities. But let's not forget that the biggest consumer is the public. That's the biggest one. So we had to make sure, or at least I felt like that was my job, to make sure that we at least consider this community when we put out data. We consider this community and their interest as people that are there involved in it, their own location in these areas. Maybe their interest is because it happened in their town. Maybe it's their next-door neighbor. Can't discount that. Not everybody works in an official capacity. But somebody is the person that brings forward that piece of data that could solve that case. We have to remember that. So I felt like I had to be there. Sometimes you might not have wanted to be there, and you wish you could have done something more independent. But I had to be there during that formative years to make sure that we all respected each other and we existed together. And, and that makes perfect sense. I, as I look geographically at the unidentified, you're taking in the U.S., Canada, Mexico, Europe, yeah. and Australia. And that's just, other than Interpol, I can't think of any other international kind of agency that would be dealing with something like that. And th- the fact that you have uh, expanded to include that, I think, really speaks highly that you're just not trying to be exclusive to, you know, our country in in these particular situations, because the feelings that people have are universal. They're not just reserved for one country or another country like that. Now, you had to go, the same problem happened in the United States. Sometimes we would have cases that were unsolved because of a county boundary, because of a city boundary, because of a state boundary. So when NamUs expanded it out to the United States and we're going to cross these boundaries, now, thinking on a global scale, Doe Network has to do the same thing. There's a vast difference. Doe Network costs hundreds of dollars. NamUs costs millions of dollars. But there's a big difference. There's a lot of volunteer hands. There's data that's in articles, and NamUs is dealing with complex testing, DNA analysis, things that are really not cheap and not easy. They're complex. So they're, they're, they're so different, but they can benefit from each other's existence, if that makes any sense. It makes perfect sense. And you all are, how are you all? I usually just pay for the website. It's really not that much overall of the year. There's no funding for Doe Network. Everybody volunteers their time. So everybody, I can't say that I pay for it. Everybody pays with their blood, sweat, and tears. Everybody that gives their precious time are people that pay for what we do. And a lot of it is just common sense. If there's a crime in town and you know that there's people breaking in at night, you lock your doors. You make sure you leave a security line on whatever. Doe Network's the same thing. Do you want to end up missing or unidentified? Do you want any of your family members? I think it's just a common sense thing to do. And I feel like the professional community feels like it's not their problem to deal with. It's all of our problem. If you have a missing person, it's more important to you than anybody else in the entire world, including law enforcement. That's correct. So the competition has to stop. It's just like, my job, no, it's your job, or you're step overstepping. It's just, let's find a way to all work together. And I think when you're talking to the volunteer community, you have to be very careful in what you tell them to do. I'm not asking you to redo a, a facial reconstruction ad color because it was black and white. Mm-hmm. It was black and white on purpose. So there was a reason for that. We're not asking you to go to a crime thing to see if you can find a clue. We're asking you to go to the library, see if you can find an article that's not digitized. Right. We're asking you to bring forth a comment from person that maybe is not internet savvy that has a story but can't tell it because they're not able. We're still in that time period where there are people that are older that have, have relevant information that are not tech savvy. Somebody has to take that information and, and digitize it. Somebody has to scan photos before they're lost. Paper rots away. Paper crumbles away. It's different. So 
it's a timetable for Doe Network. We've got to get as much as we can and digitize it as quickly as possible to make sure that it's not lost. Hmm. Can you give us another example other than the uh, t- tent girl? And I know she has a name, so I don't want to call her tent girl. I would, I would rather. Well, I see them as two different people, even though they've been together. Barbara Taylor, Barbara Hatman Taylor, and tent girl. To me, I'm still at that point before we joined them together and made one person out of them. I can still see two distinct individuals there. I can see the person that my wife's family and then partly me grew up with and the family that had this missing person. That moment that they came together was just amazing, but I still have to see them together separately. There was a case called Madison Man, and that was in Kentucky, and I got contacted by a college student and said, hey, this is before Department of Justice come along. This is before Namath. There's a John Doe up here in Madison County, Kentucky, and he's Madison Man because he was found in Madison County. There was a Madison label in his coat, which is unrelated. It was just a brand name. And he had a Madison, Wisconsin grocery store wrapped around his head, a bag, one of those little plastic bags with tied around his head. So I decided, I went to the grave, I met the college student, I went to the grave, and the marker was just John Doe, the date, I think it was 2004, was written on the, the actual, just the aluminum marker that could be pulled out. First thing I thought, well, he needs a permanent stone because that's going to be lost and we won't even know where the body is. I've done that before. So I actually had a tombstone that was in my family's barn from my grandfather's family and it was a tombstone that my great-grandmother had ordered for one of her sons that was killed in world war ii and it was blank it was a mail-order tombstone he actually got a military stone because he died in at the war and i asked can i have that stone and i put madison man on it and i put it on his grave before i got home from that area back to livingston tennessee it was in the media mysterious stone appears and I had to come no way. It's not a mysterious stone. I didn't define, it's not, it's nothing mysterious. Right. I did this. So there was a news story about the mysterious stone. So I sent it to Madison, Wisconsin, to a newspaper there in Madison, Wisconsin, because there was a connection there. They ran the story as a, just a human interest story. His sister-in-law came forward and said, that's my brother-in-law. Oh, and my it God. was, wow. it was. So sometimes, and I mean, and it didn't take, people said that was a genius concept. No, it was an accident, but I was smart enough to make that accident be something better. I saw that there was a lot of attention focused on something that seemed one thing, you made another out of it, and I took that opportunity to send him home. There was an opportunity. The media took a look at that story for just a minute, and I thought, I can catapult that into something more, and it worked. We sent him home. Thank God we sent him home. Madison man went home. Wow. Do you think we have a tendency, Todd, to rely less on our intellect or our hunches or our gut feeling and more on what I would call technological kinds of things? And I'm not pitting one against the other because they both need to be married together. But It does happen. Now, I can see that. Let's just say we can't just say it's a us, forget about it. Let's not worry about it. It's a us. We need to let it go. Okay, somebody has to turn those wheels. Somebody has to be the consumer of that product. So the volunteer communities that keep this story alive need to keep going. We don't want to get complacent and say, hey, we done it. I had this same experience with DNA. I would have working in an official capacity with NamUs, and I love NamUs. NamUs will always be something that I think should be there. But when I was with NamUs, people would say, I did DNA, so I'm not going to worry about the dental record. Maybe we shouldn't because the remains could be highly degraded. You never know. It might be something that codeds can't fix. It could be something else. So don't discount the other technologies because you think you've done the top technology. 
You, we did DNA, so we don't need fingerprints or dental records, or we'll get them if we need them. They can go away. It's mm-hmm. the same premise with Doe Network. If you don't get that newspaper article, it might be disposed of. It might become extinct. The same thing is in the professional world. If we don't get that dental record or that fingerprint, it might not always be available at your wish. Get it while you can get it. We passed a resolution in Tennessee last year, uh, and it was because of this. We already had a state law in Tennessee that requires the use of NamUs. But we did a resolution in Tennessee that requires that ask medical professionals, if you're a dental provider and you have a missing person that, that is your patient, it is not a HIPAA violation to raise your hand and say, hey, I have dental records for Todd Matthews. He's missing. I have dental records. Do you want them? And we want them to say yes. We want them to say yes, we do want them. I think if you push them across the table, it's easier for law enforcement to reach across and pull them back. Right. And they might not always know that you exist. My mom doesn't know all the dental providers I've been to. I've been to multiple dentists. If she had to look at my dental records, she might point out one or two dentists, but she might not know the ones that have the radiographs, the x-rays that could identify me. We don't know what part of a body is found. It could be a fraction of a jaw. It could be a mandible. It could be anything. So I think we have to think beyond normal. What a, uh, it, it might not be a pristine body that's found. It could be a portion of a body what a great that's point. found. But we have to do everything possible to do. Don't become complacent. What a great point. Yeah, that is a great point. Yeah. We've been talking to Todd Matthews. He's a founder of the Doe Network, and he right now works for them as the communications uh, director. This is a fascinating thing, and we got onto this, folks, by our, our previous show, one of our previous shows, when we were talking about Precious Hope St. Louis's baby Jane Doe, which we'll link up with uh, Todd here in a moment. And t- Todd, as uh, Mark and I were talking a little bit off the air, I-, I can't think of why law enforcement or any group of people would not want as much information as they could. You know, it's like the more information you have, the better decision making you can make and eliminating things, not eliminating things. And your point about the, man, if we can, if, if you're a dentist and you hear about this missing person that are in your records to be able to do that because you just may find a right. portion of a jaw like that that made so much sense to us oh yeah knowledge is power yeah yeah what where do you see this going where do you see the doe network going in the future i think advocacy is the main thing like it there's just so many cases that you guys can can read about and look at and bring to the internet we're going to get as many as we can possibly get but i think we have to strengthen state laws i think the members have to become lobbyists and with the lack of a better word we're going to have to go out and talk to our state representatives to make sure in every state that we are doing everything that we can do i remember when we passed state law in tennessee in 2017 that required the use of name and that was just superficial based on nothing to do with the resolution asking the community to come forward with more information this was making sure that we were using it and i remember it was a unanimous vote it was a unanimous vote, but it took a lot of work, and we had to knock on a lot of doors. I was with my local representative, John Mark Wendell, and here in our town of Livingston, Tennessee, and his local state representative, and he was worried because we, we got to make sure we get both sides of the aisle involved in it. And I remember some of the meetings. I was drilled, obviously. What benefit of this is? And I thought, well, you're paying for it. Your taxes are paying for it. You are paying for this, whether or not you use it. So, in other words, you're buying lunch for somebody else, and they're eating it. it do you want to use it or not? Huh. I think when we look at it from a financial standpoint, from a logical standpoint, from a victim standpoint, 
we should be using it. So I remember I was there that day at the Tennessee State Capitol when we voted on NamUs, making NamUs a state law, and I heard those green lights kept popping on. It was such a thrill. I can't even describe to you the feeling, the exhilaration of seeing those green lights pop up. All of them were green. Nobody opposed it. It was unanimous. I remember the Speaker of the House, he smacked the gavel down. He, he pointed at me. He said, young man, you just made state law in Tennessee. And I was thinking in the back of my mind, young man, I'm four years older than you. But <laughs> I knew my men. I knew my men and ladies that were up yeah. our state capitol. I knew what they were. I knew their concerns, financial. I knew their concerns. So when I was able to lobby them to get them, because I wasn't asking for money, I was asking for use what I've already paid for, use what you've already bought. I knew them well enough, so I knew their ages, I knew they had children, I knew a lot of stuff. So it's really important that I did because I expected some more kickback. I expected a few more challenges than I had. Mm-hmm. So when somebody says well, I don't believe this, I would have said, "Hey, you got a twelve-year-old daughter. What happens if she don't come home tonight? Huh. What are you going to do about it?" Right. I was ready for that level of an argument that I didn't have to have. And, and I feel so good about that. I didn't have to have that battle. I didn't have to take it that, that, that to the level, that to their heart. I didn't have to really say, what if your girl, Tabitha, doesn't come home tonight? What are you going to do? I didn't have to fight that battle. I was fully armored, and I got to walk away without a scratch. Huh. Do you know which states have done what you guys have done down in Tennessee? There's approximately 10 states, and originally it started in New York, and I worked on that in, in particular. And New York passed it on missing persons. Tennessee passed it on missing and unidentified. New York went back and amended it. So Tennessee, as a volunteer state, was the first state to pass it on both sides. But honestly speaking, we used the name, the language that we developed in New York with Assemblyman Steve Otis in New York for Tennessee so that I would at least have something to go to my state representative my friend and we practically family, John Mark Wendell, I had sent to say, hey, can we do this, but can we add this to it? And we did, and it worked. And then we passed that draft information uh, legislation on to many other states, New Mexico, Arkansas, North Carolina, West Virginia. There's so many other states that have looked at it. And as far as it having teeth, has Tennessee been completely compliant? No, I've not. There's no teeth in it, so there's no punishment phase if you don't follow this guideline, uh, you don't have funding for this or this because it's federal funding, so I can't stop it at a state level. But we still have to have volunteers. We still have to have the families of the missing to enter their cases into NamUs. NamUs was designed so that not just law enforcement can enter it. There's areas of NamUs that only law enforcement can access, but mom and dad have to be able to enter their missing person. The next-door neighbor has to be able to enter their missing person. And I know that sounds like a big stretch, but there's a crisis because there was a lack of somebody doing that we have to open the doors to the public to let them do it is it finished no if a public member enters a missing person's case from livingston tennessee it'll be validated a very confident staff at name we'll go to law enforcement we'll make sure they're on board with it sometimes they're not even aware of it so i think it's more or less a great reminder we do have a system in place that can do this we do have resources that can fill these needs we have a lot of things so from an awareness standpoint it was very important to pass that state law. And I feel like a lot of people say there's a state law, but it didn't solve the problem. We have to give it time. We have to let these things soak in. Longboat wasn't built in a day, and once, people can't say I didn't know about NamUs in Tennessee because it's a state law and it's on the books and it's part of the training academy. You can never, no cop can tell me if they went to a recent academy, I never heard of NamUs. 
Yes, they have. Hmm. Yes, they have. Do you know if Missouri is part of that? I know Missouri has looked at it. I know there's been some conversation, and maybe you guys could even be part of more conversations. That sounds like a, a plan that Mark and I yeah. would be involved with. Oh, yeah. And this is how I find my people that are going to be the people to be the boots on the ground in that state is the right. exact thing that we did today. It's a person that's invested in it because they have a missing loved one, or it's somebody in the media that says, you know what, I'm tired of this. It has to change. Yeah. That's why I want to do this radio show with you guys today. Somebody had to say it's time for things to change. This is overwhelming. You told me yourself, look at the numbers. We can't believe this. We're astounded by this. You should be. You should be. Now what are you going to do about it? And and what got me on to the Doe Network was the interview that we had previously done on the documentary Precious Hope St. Louis' Baby Jane Doe. I don't know if you're Mm -hmm. familiar with that at all. Oh, yeah. I am. Because I know the question that they ask are, is she on the Doe Network? Is she on NamUs and things like that? And I was, I'm not as adept as you are with being able to maneuver through the website because I haven't had enough time to get in there and, and do that. But it's just a horrific case here in St. Louis. And it's just one of, you know, thousands and thousands. And I look at your website and you correct me if I'm wrong, 107 Doe Network cases solved or assisted solved. As of December 26, 2021. That's oh, incredible. That's, that's incredible, Todd. Well, it's, and I think there's more. I think there's more because you, it's really hard to discern who done what. So when I was with Department of Justice and, and there was the solve with NamUs, and sometimes we get public tips. Most of the times we relied on DNA technology. It was cold it. I would literally have people from the public calling who gets credit, who solved it, who, who submitted the tip first. And honestly, there's so many Sometimes it was just a tip that come in. Sometimes it was just a, a cold it and encode it. There was nothing. There was, it was based on no no submission, uh-huh. no tip. No. And I think there's a lot of uh, cases being solved now because of the genealogical and ancestral yeah. kinds of things being done with oh, DNA yeah. and yeah. finding out where you came from, what what part of what continent you came right. from and are tracked back to. That has really linked back like on a lot of old cold cases. Oh, has that has, come up know, for you? Uh, yeah. And you Let's see, a stabilized type analysis, and that's something that's done through the Smithsonian. You can actually take human remains and, and find out where they've spent most of their life based on their mineral content of their bones. You can tell what water they drink, what air they breathe, product they consume during the bulk of their life. So that's something that's really important because you can target a certain area. There's a Jane Doe in Tennessee, and I want stabilized type analysis out of her. She's found in 1972 around the Smoky Mountain area, the Obergatlinburg Tramway. If I can get a stable isotope analysis from her, I can actually target a particular place on the globe. The Smoky Mountains, the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, is probably one of the most visited parts in the United States of America, and it's within my back door. So it could have literally have been somebody from anywhere on the planet, this right. Jane Doe that was found that leaned up against a tree and quietly passed away. She's never been identified for almost my entire lifetime. Wow. I would love to find her country of origin. She could have been from Germany. She could have been from anywhere in the planet. She certainly wasn't local in these small rural communities. She's nobody that's missing from here. So where was she from? Stabilized up analysis could solve that. Or it could give me a better aim on the target. That's exactly right. Todd, give us uh, closing thoughts on 
what you would want to you have an open mic right now to talk to uh, people because we're going to we're broadcasting all over the world as yeah. over the internet so what do you, what do you want to tell them about the Doe Network and, and what the work that you do in closing up here so with the Doe Network and name is I think it's important and if you don't see a case on Doe Network let us know it's missing or unidentified but they happen daily but we're looking for long-term missing any unidentified and name us if you're in the United States, if you have a missing or unidentified person that you're aware of, it's not nameless, you can change that. You can't ask somebody else to change it as much as you can change it yourself. You can literally log on to nameless, create a user profile, and enter it yourself. Don't wait for somebody else to do their job because that's what you get played on a lot of people. It's not my job. You're a human being, and you have compassion for other human beings to do it. Enter it into the system. It will be validated, and then... If valid, it will be published. So I think that's important. And talk to your legislatures. Whether you're passing a state law or not, talk to them about it. What are you going to do about the missing and unidentified in our state? There are people out there listening to us now that know some of our state representatives on a personal level. Awareness is the biggest part of the battle. What you don't know will hurt you. What you do know can help you. So I think if you just at least bring it up and make it a topic, you spread awareness. Even you planted a tiny little mustard seed. It can grow. Be happy with the seeds that you can plant. The world won't change in a day. So do everything you can if you possibly can. doesn't cost you anything. It's just conversation. Right. Absolutely. Todd Matthews, who is the founder of the Doe Network. Todd, thanks for coming on St. Louis in Tune today. We greatly appreciate it. Let's stay in touch and uh, touch base with you down the road. Thank you, Todd. All right. Thank you for giving me a mic. Okay. I appreciate it. You bet. Take care, sir. Wow. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Fantastic. Wow. Mark, I, I never knew about these things until oh, we started. Going down that road. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of organizations out there, and I'm looking at their website right now. There's just, they have case files on here, the unidentified, the missing, the closed, and submitting a new case, submitting an update. What are some potential matches? They give a variety of resources. You can submit some DNA, have some family support, liaison. They have NamUs on here. So there's just... An unbelievable amount of things. And then on the NamUs website, they have a dashboard, which it's searching for missing persons, unidentified and unclaimed. And you can do it by state. You can do it by where they were found, the county. It's just all of this information that, my words, sometimes doesn't talk to each other. No, it doesn't. It's a shame. You would think nowadays with uh, all the advancements in technology that we would be talking to each other a little bit better than we do. It's really important. I can't imagine having someone in my family, in yeah. my my circle or my peeps, whatever right. you want to call right. it, missing. Oh my gosh! How do you go to bed that night? The when you when they're gone, it's like they're not home. They haven't been home for a month. How do you do that? How do you just? I just don't know how you. Do it, it just destroys people and destroys families. It's bad enough to lose someone that passes away, but to have them just plucked from your life and where are they what happened to them you know what's going no closure exactly uh wow so what a wonderful project he's got thank goodness that he has that passion to do it he's doing it out of his own pocket as he said but wow it's just there's so much i didn't think of i've been to about six different dentists and i don't know i think my teeth have changed since the first couple of dentists i've been to yeah those are things you don't I don't think about those things. When you think about uh, this show, the the show we did on the uh, movie, on the documentary uh-huh. about Precious Hope, and then the shows that we've done on 
the exploitation of individuals, whether it be for domestic kinds of servitude or sex or those kinds of things. All of these things meld together in a, in a variety of ways. They have some intersection there because many kids disappear. Who knows? Maybe they're being exploited as a d- domestic worker somewhere or out in a field somewhere or in a factory or use, being used sexually. And then we have, you know, people who are just unidentified. You don't know who they are. Right. And it's like, why doesn't somebody care about another person? Do we, are we that course or we don't have those feelings for people that we just we assumed oh somebody's taking care of them or right. oh they're somewhere else and right. we're not checking on people no i know it's uh it's a sad state i'm afraid sometimes it's like checking in on your neighbors you hear about those stories where somebody had been had died like 2 years previously and they've been sitting in their chair and the mail had been continually delivered Right. Or had stopped, or because it piled up and contacted this no, person. And no, it's just nobody gave it a second thought. Unbelievable! It is unbelievable. It's uh, it is unbelievable. We're all in this together. We appreciate you listening to this episode of St. Louis in Tune. If you enjoy this episode, please consider letting us know. The best way to do this is by rating us on Apple Podcast. You could even write a review. St. Louis in Tune is produced in cooperation with KWRH ninety two nine FM and Motif Media Group. For St. Louis in Tune, I'm Arnold Stricker. Oh,